This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening, GYC. Happy Sabbath. What a way to spend the last Sabbath of 2016. Amen? I would rather be no other place than here at GYC. I know the Lord has blessed you tremendously over the last two days, and I'm looking forward to hearing about the testimonies tomorrow of how the Lord blessed in outreach today. The Lord has a blessing prepared for us tonight also, and as we linger in His presence just a little bit longer, I would invite you to bow your heads with me, and we're going to take just a moment to come into the throne of God and ask His blessing upon the study of His Word. Would you bow your heads with me now? Merciful God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Sabbath. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Word. We thank you, Father, for the many blessings that you give to us. And tonight, dear Jesus, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon this place and that your children would be blessed by the hearing of your word. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Adventists are uniquely privileged to understand the Bible in a way that no other church understands it. One of the unique perspectives that we have as a people is the doctrine of the investigative judgment. There are passages of Scripture in the Bible that really cannot be fully understood unless it is looked at through the lens of this great doctrine in the Word of God. For an example, take for an example the, the, the parable of the wedding garment in Matthew chapter 22. Most Bible commentators know that the king in Matthew 22 represents God the Father. Most Bible commentators, uh, non-Adventist Bible commentators, know that the son in the, the story represents Jesus. Most Bible commentators know that the invitation to the wedding feast is the gospel invitation. Most Bible commentators know that the robe represents the righteousness of Christ. However, there is an element of that parable that has only begun to be understood uh, in the last 160 or so years. Now, that's rather interesting when you think about the fact that the parable of the wedding garment was given to us over 2,000 years ago, and it's only in the last 160 years that a certain portion of that parable is now able to be understood. I know you've read the story before, and you're probably familiar with it, but I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Matthew chapter 22, 
And we're going to look at verse 9. We're going to start in verse 9. At this point, while you are turning there, there have been two invitations that have been made to the wedding feast. Both of those invitations have been rejected. And in verse 9, the third invitation is being given to come to the wedding, to the wedding feast. Verse 9, the Bible says this. This is the king talking. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished. Now, if you stop the story there, it appears like the problem has been solved. The problem was that there were, no wed- there were no guests at the wedding. How can you have a wedding without guests there? But it appears at this point like the problem has been solved. However, we understand that the story does not stop there. There's more to the story. As we look at the story, what we find out is that not only is there a, a distinction between those who accept the invitation and those who reject the invitation, but as you continue to read the parable, you will also find that there is a separation among those who have accepted the invitation as well. Because not all who accept the gospel invitation do so for the right reasons. Continue reading with me, if you would. Verse 11, the Bible says this. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, I love how God the Father refers to him. Friend, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And the Bible says he was speechless. Who comes to a wedding without being appropriately clothed? You know, if I wanted to go to a wedding in in shorts and a t-shirt, I can pretty much guarantee you that my wife would not go with me. There was a tie that I wanted to wear to GYC, and she said, no, you cannot wear that tie. But here we have this guy. He has the audacity to come to the wedding feast, and he is not properly clothed in the right wedding garment. In the book Great Controversy, page 428, the servant of the Lord says this. In the parable of Matthew 22, the investigative judgment is clearly represented as taking place before the marriage. Previous to the wedding, the king comes to see the guest. Now listen to this to see if all are attired in the wedding garment, the spotless robe of character washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. And then she says this, this work of examination of character, of determining who are prepared for the kingdom of God is that of the investigative judgment. So in the last 160 years, God has, as the formation of this doctrine has developed, we went over that in our study together last night, now we are able to have a fuller understanding of this great parable in Matthew 22, that when the king comes in, he is coming in for a specific reason. And I don't want you to miss this point tonight. When the king comes in, he comes in to see who has the wedding garment 
on. He does not come into the, uh, into the gathering of people to dole out the wedding garment. That has already taken place. That wedding garment has already been given out. But he comes in to see who has the wedding garment on. Now, here is a point in this parable that is unique to Seventh-day Adventists. Most miss the significance of the king's inspection. But when my name is called, listen to me carefully, in the investigative judgment, when my case is examined, they will determine whether or not I have the wedding garment on or not. That's the point of the investigative judgment, to determine who has the wedding garment already on, the precious character, the spotless character of Jesus Christ. Now, the good news this evening is this. Christ is ready and willing to give His character to anybody who wants it. Amen? That's something that should thrill your heart with great joy. Jesus is willing if we ask and we say, Lord, please give me this character. I do not have it of my own, but give me the character of Christ. He is ready. He is willing. He is able to give you this character, the spotless robe of the wedding garment. But if we do not take it on, which would be your choice, it will be said to us as it was to the man in the story as the king came in, how comest thou hither? not having the wedding garment. And it will be with us as it was with the man in the story. We also will be speechless. Speechless because there will be no excuse worth uttering in response to that penetrating question. Speechless because instantly will flash through our minds all of the times that the Holy Spirit has tried to help us put that wedding garment on. Speechless uh, because there we will, we will recognize all of the wasted opportunities that we had to put the wedding garment on. Speechless because at that time we will have terror because we will realize that the time is too late. We will be speechless because there will be nothing worth saying in answer to that question. How comest thou hither, not having the garment on? And it will be said to that speechless man, who was, interestingly enough, afforded all of the same opportunities that everybody else was afforded, he had everything at his disposal just like everybody else did. He had all the same opportunities that everybody else had. It will be said to those who do not have the wedding garment on, in verse 13. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's the part of the parable we want to quickly glaze over and continue reading the rest of the chapter. It makes us uncomfortable to think about that, that there will come a time where God will utter these words to those who have chosen of their own choice not to have the wedding garment put on. That he would say, depart ye, that there would be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Is it a reality to you today that right now in the kingdom of heaven, names are being accepted, names are being rejected, that this great work of judgment is taking place, that there is an investigation into the cases of men to see if they are clad in the wedding garment, the spotless character of Jesus Christ. Is that a reality to you? I believe the king wants to come to GYC. And he wants to see a group of young people who are clad in the beautiful wedding garment of the spotless character of Jesus. But the question tonight is this. If the king were to look at you right now, what would he see? If the king were to look at you, if your case came up right now, what would the king see? Would he see the wedding garment on or would he see a garment of your own creation? By God's grace, one day, if not today, the king will see that you have the wedding garment on. Amen? Now, I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And I want you to look at John's description, Revelation chapter 3. I want you to look at John's description of those who are allowed to stay at the wedding feast. Uh, Those that were not clad properly were cast out. But those that are allowed to stay, notice how John describes them. This is a beautiful passage. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. The Bible says this, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. That's the wedding garment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Who are the ones that are clothed in a beautiful white wedding garment? John describes them as those who have overcome. I don't want you to miss this point, that those who overcome are the ones who have the wedding garment on. Many times throughout the book of Revelation, as you look at John's description of God's people, you will see that he describes them as overcomers. Please quickly notice with me as you look at this Bible passage that John does not describe these people as those who have been forgiven, although that is true. They have been forgiven. But John describes them as what? Overcomers. There is a distinct difference between being forgiven and being a overcomer. One who is forgiven is forgiven by virtue of the fact that they have been tempted and they fell into that temptation. They've sinned, therefore they need to be forgiven. 
But somebody who has overcome is one who has been tempted by the devil to do wrong. They have resisted that temptation and they have done what is right instead of the wrong. One who is an overcomer is somebody who has been changed from enjoying sin to hating sin. One who is an overcomer is one who finds great delight and pleasure not in the sinful things of this world but in obedience to God and His Word. Would you say amen? And John describes the people of God who are clad in the wedding garment that they are those who have overcome. They will be the ones that have the wedding garment on. And now we get to the heart of the message. God's people have been forgiven. Would you say amen? I praise the Lord for the gift of forgiveness. That when we do wrong, we can ask Him, forgive me, Lord, and He forgives us. But as a whole, God's people cannot yet be described as overcomers. The good news is that one day they will be, but we're, we're not quite there yet. If we were, we wouldn't be here any longer. Now, I want you to notice with me a passage from First Selected Messages, page 343. The servant of the Lord pens these outstanding words. She says this, Christ is represented as continually standing at the altar, momentarily offering up the sacrifice for the sins of the world. The atoning sacrifice through a mediator is essential. What is essential? The atoning sacrifice through a mediator is essential. Now, don't miss this next part. Because of the constant commission of sins. Why does Jesus have to continue doing the work of mediation? Because of the constant commission, the constant flowing of sins into the heavenly sanctuary. Our sins, when we sin, brothers and sisters, we are keeping Jesus employed in the heavenly sanctuary. And that's not where we want Him. We want to be with Him. We want to be in heaven. We want to see Him. We want to walk with Him. We want to talk with Him. We don't want to keep Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary doing the work of intercession. Would you say amen? amen. But Jesus is there. It is, it is a requirement for Him to be there because of the constant commission of sins that are ascending to the kingdom of heaven. The reason why Jesus has waited for the past over 170 years to come back to this world is because God's people are still sinning. Turn with me to Revelation 22, just a couple of chapters back. Verses 11 and 12. Revelation, the 22nd chapter, verses 11 and 12. Listen to these profound words that Jesus utters when the work of cleansing the sanctuary has been completed. Jesus says this, Matthew 22, verses 11 and 12. I'm sorry, Revelation 22, thank you. Revelation 22, 11 and 12. The Bible says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. 
And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And then in verse 12, he says, And behold, I what? Come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. Jesus tells us that right before he comes, the entire world will reach the point of no return. They will reach a point where they are no longer going to change. The wicked will continue being wicked. They will continue to sin, sin stubbornly persistent in their course of wholehearted rebellion against God. But the righteous will continue being righteous because they also are stubbornly persistent in their course of wholehearted surrender to God in living a life of obedience and victory in Jesus. Right before Jesus comes back, the entire world will be polarized into one of two groups. A point of no return will happen, and Jesus will pronounce the end of his work, and he will come and take his bride home, who can now be described as overcomers. When we reach that point of no return, we are walking as Enoch walked, and God wants us to be in the atmosphere of heaven with him. In his 1974 address to the annual council, a man who I've grown to respect, who's no longer with us, I look forward to meeting him when we get to heaven, W.D. Frizee made this fascinating statement at the annual council. He was describing the heavenly sanctuary as a hospital that deals with the sin problem. And then he made this fascinating statement. He said this, but the emergency hospital that has been dealing with the sin problem for centuries is going to close. Why? May I put it simply, he says, for a lack of business. Profound. Absolutely profound. I don't think we get the full ramifications of what that means. This is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Yes, there is going to come a time that there will no longer be a constant stream of commissionings of sins that will ascend into the heavenly sanctuary. No longer will the people of God be caught in the crazy cycle of sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting. No longer will the wicked people feel remorse for sin no longer will they feel the need to confess their sins into the heavenly sanctuary. Why? Because the wicked will go on sinning and the righteous will go on overcoming. And the heavenly sanctuary will be closed for a lack of business. This is good news, amen? One day, one day God's people We'll be described as overcomers. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, tonight, Jesus is longing for that, for that moment. He is yearning to see a church that can be described as overcomers, that he can come back to this world and take, back to them, take them back to the kingdom of heaven and spend eternity together with them. And I don't know about you, but tonight I want to be part of that group. The fact that Jesus has waited so long tells me that he wants something so bad that he will wait and wait 
and wait until he gets it. He will continue to wait. There is something that Jesus wants so bad that he will wait and wait until he gets it. And and, and what Jesus is not waiting for is he is not waiting for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. He is not waiting for a national Sunday law. He is not waiting for the enforcement of the mark of the beast. He is not waiting for some political uh, things to take place in this world where, where the papacy gains a certain measure of control. This is not what Jesus is waiting for. He is waiting for something far better, much greater, and he will wait, and he will wait, and he will wait because he is a patient God, and he wants to wait until he gets what he is looking for. And tonight, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you what Jesus is waiting for is he's waiting for his people. What Jesus is waiting for is he's waiting for his people. From the book Maranatha, great devotional book, Page 112, we're told this. It's a beautiful passage. Christ is waiting. What is he doing? Christ is waiting with longing desire. How is he waiting? Longing desire. It's like he's waiting with great expectation. He's waiting for for something that he wants so bad. It's almost like I remember my wedding day as I was standing on on the podium waiting to see my dear wife come into the back of the church with longing desire, with great expectation for this beautiful day when we would unite our our lives together. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. What is he waiting for? The manifestation of himself in the church. When the character of the Savior shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. When does he come? He comes when he sees the character of himself reproduced in the life of his people. And he will wait, and he will wait, and he will wait with longing desire because he's waiting to see the signs of his character being replicated in the life of his people. He's waiting for his people to not only profess godliness, but to live godliness. Let the people of God say amen. He's waiting with longing desire. And I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. This is not just a spirit of prophecy concept. This is biblical. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says this, But we know that when he shall appear. What event is that? When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Like who? Like the world? Like what you see on TV? Like uh, some uh, religious person in the church? Some uh, popular religious person? No, the Bible says that when Jesus comes, we shall be like him. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but the first time I read that Bible passage, I had to fall down on my knees and say, God, there's no way I can do this. 
There is absolutely no way that I can be like you unless you perform that miracle in my life. And dear Jesus, I'm willing for you to do that work in my life. I know what you're thinking tonight. Jason, you are absolutely crazy. There's no way I can be perfect. There's no, listen, I'm trying to have a consistent devotional life and not overeat. And now you're here telling me tonight that I have to be perfect, that I have to be like Jesus when he comes back. No, I'm not telling you that. The Bible is telling you that. And you know, sometimes I, I kind of find it interesting that as Seventh-day Adventists, as Christians, we believe that God had the power to create the world in six literal days, to create something out of nothing, but we question His ability to give us victory over sin in our lives. Listen, let's not put God in a box. I serve a God that's bigger than that. The Bible says that when Jesus comes, we shall be like Him. Jot down these promises in your notes tonight, if you would. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. We must have promises when we deal with this stuff. Otherwise, we'll just get smothered in hopelessness that there's no way I can achieve this goal. Uh, John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. The, the Bible says this, And this is the confidence that we have in Jason Sliger. That we have in the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is the confidence, the boldness that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He what? Now listen to me. If the Bible says that when He appears, I'm going to be like Him. If I ask Him, Lord, do that work in my life, is He going to answer that prayer, yes or no? There is no question about it that we can be emphatic in our answer, yes. He will give it to us because I'm praying according to His will. These are simple promises. They have huge ramifications if we actually apply them. I love this one. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ. Listen, God is not asking you to do this work of character development on your own. He's not asking you to take the robe of Christ's righteousness, the wedding garment, and put it on yourself. He's saying, listen, I'm doing this work. I will finish it if you will simply let me. God is saying, listen, if you'll step out of the driver's seat and stop act like, acting like you know what you're doing and let me take control over your life, I will do this work for you. I will create the impossible. I will make you to be like Jesus. I will change your desires. I will change your wants. I will change your lusts and your desires. I will change them so that when you come into heaven, it will be a natural transition for you. Manuscript release, volume 12, page 55, servant of the Lord says this, God, this is a promise, has made every, has made provision that every difficulty may be overcome. God has made provision that every difficulty may be overcome. Do we believe that? 
every difficulty, every one supplied through the Holy Spirit. Thus, He designs that man shall perfect a Christian character. Every difficulty. Listen, God, again, He's not saying you have to do this on your own. He's not telling us to do He says, listen, I will provide it for you if you will simply let me do that work. Now, you may be asking the question, how is this supposed to happen? How, how, how am I supposed to have this drastic character transformation? Listen, Jason, I've never seen somebody like this. How does it work? There's a beautiful passage of Scripture where Paul answers this question for us in beautifully simple language. And I want you to go there with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. The Bible says this, But we all... With open face, beholding as in a glass the glory, the character of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Say amen to that. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We're changed into the same image. It is, a, it, is a, it is a law of nature that what you behold is what you become. It is as unchangeable as Newton's law of gravity. You might think that you can control what you see and how that affects your life. But if you think that, you're only kidding yourself. What we see, what we behold, is what we become. But back to our original question. How can I have this total character transformation in my life? It is so simple that my three and five-year-old could understand this. God doesn't make this stuff complicated. He says, listen, if you want my character, make Jesus the focus in your life. Simple as that. Plain and simple. This is not theologically complicated stuff. He says, make me the primary focus in your life. Look to Jesus. Study him. Think about him. Talk about him. Let Jesus be the all-consuming thoughts of your mind as you go through the day, as you go about your work. Think and talk and meditate upon the life of Jesus. Maybe this might mean that you need to get rid of, get rid of a few things in your life that are killing your spiritual walk with the Lord. Maybe this means that you need to change the course of your life. Maybe this means that you need to get rid of the pornography in your life that is changing your character from what God wants it to be to what the world wants it to be. Maybe it means you need to get rid of the novels that you're reading in your life that's changing your character into the world instead of a character after God. Maybe it needs you, means you need to get rid of Hollywood out of your life and all of its mediums and all of its forms so that you can have the character of God instead of the character of Hollywood. What you behold is what you become. And if you want to be able to come to the judgment and have the king look upon you and see that you have the wedding garment on, turn your eyes to Jesus. So the question is, what am I spending my time beholding? You know, as you go through the day, you always have these little minutes here and there. And when you have those little minutes where, where you're not doing much, what do you begin to think about? 
What do you think about as you're driving down the road? What do you think about while you're brushing your teeth at night? What do you think about while you're taking a shower in the evening or in the morning? What do you think about as you're walking down the road observing nature or whatever it is? What do you think about in those scraps of moments as you go through the day? And I believe if you're honest with yourself and you begin to reflect upon this, you will all of a sudden realize where you are, why you are at where you're at in your spiritual experience. We need to gather up these fragments and throughout the day, not just leave Jesus at our devotions, not just leave him at church, but carry him with us throughout the day, meditating and thinking and, and, and reflecting upon him. Literally, I asked you the question, who are you beholding? Who are you looking at? Listen, some of us spend more time looking at ourselves in a 24-hour period of time in the mirror than we spend looking at Jesus. Lord, have mercy. And you men out there that are pointing your finger at the women, listen, I know there's guys out there that are looking at themselves in every shiny surface they can find. <laughs> listen, in all sincerity, if you want to be a real man, stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. The world today has made Jesus look like a weak man. But I'm here to tell you this evening that if you want real masculinity, if you want real manliness, look at Jesus because there's no better man than him. Who are you beholding? Who are you looking at? What is consuming your thoughts as you go throughout the day? When people think about you, what do they think about? Do they, do they think of you as a spiritual person or as a nominal Christian? Do they think of you as somebody who's like Jesus or like a lukewarm Laodicean? You know, when Moses came down from the mount in Exodus chapter 34, the Bible tells us that his face was shining after being in the presence of God, after looking at God. They had to veil his face for fear as they looked at him. And brothers and sisters, they didn't have to ask Moses, who were you with? If we look at Jesus in the morning, it should shine forth out of our faces in the actions and the life that we live. People should know that you have beheld Jesus in the morning. This evening, I want to challenge you, spend a little bit of time in prayer and ask the Lord, Lord, what am I beholding? What happens when my mind shifts into neutral? What am I beholding? It was 1853, and Ellen and James White and perhaps a small group of other people had gathered themselves into a modest farmhouse in the state of Vermont to perform one of the earliest recorded ordination services among Sabbath-keeping Adventists at the time. Some of the guys that were ordained that day, you would doubtless recognize their names, but there was one particular individual that if you read, you would probably just continue go, going on and wouldn't take much notice of that name. This man was a powerful worker for God. He was a great, uh, dedicated man of God who presented the truths of God and helped build up the church. Therefore, they were laying the hands of ordination upon him. This man's name was Elon Everts. Elon was not just a mighty worker of God, but he was a theologian. 
In December of 1856, Elon was accompanying James and Ellen on a sleigh ride. They were traveling somewhere west in their work in the wintertime. And on that trip, Elon was spending time writing down some of his findings about the investigative judgment and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and all of the ramifications that are involved in that. And as he was jotting down this Bible truth, Elon coined the term investigative judgment at that time and handed it down to Adventism. It's become a common expression to us at the time, but it happened from the pen of this man. He was a valuable worker, and doubtless people will trace their conviction back to the preaching of this man of God. I'm sure there'll be many people in the kingdom of heaven because of Elon Everts. But unfortunately, they will probably not meet Elon Everts in heaven. Because Elon had a problem, a problem that was so insidious that even he himself could not recognize it. Powerful man of God. Right around this time, Elon and his family decided to cash in their wealth and move west to the state of Illinois. That was the west at the time. And they wanted to go out there as farmers to have a trade, but really what Elon wanted to do was to go out there and preach the gospel while he was working. Kind of a tent maker, if you will. That was what Elon wanted to do. But his wife Mary had a different idea. In fact, both James and Ellen White, as they reflected upon the move of Elon, they reflected and they, they, they both came to the same conclusion that Elon moved west because he wanted to preach the gospel. But Mary moved because she wanted to get wealthy farming. These would prove to be the last two years of Elon's life. And unfortunately, the historical accounts reveal that he spent a good portion of that time laying up treasures on earth that eventually ended up corrupting his soul. On a few occasions, Ellen appealed to Elon to sell large portions of his land to support the fledgling work in the West. But Elon proved to be a weak man, and he was, he was moved by the desires of his wife. And his wife wanted to get wealthy, and she convinced him to keep accumulating land and property and wealth and continue this work. And Elon was a weak man and did not stand up and do what was right. Finally, Ellen was, re- was shown in a vision that if Mary did not get out of the way of the work that the Lord had commissioned her husband to do, that God would have to remove her. It's hard work being a prophet. Unfortunately, Mary did not take this counsel very well. She continued in her course of rebellion, and shortly after this, Mary became sick and died. She would not give up her love for the world, And she died in her pursuit of it. It was a few weeks after Mary's death that that Ellen and James went to go visit Elon to comfort him. But they also went there to encourage him to lay up treasures in heaven, 
to do the work that God had commissioned him to do. And the roots of the world had penetrated so deep into the heart of Elon that he was wrestling with this conviction. And Ellen and James appealed to him. They worked with him. They, 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 they prayed for him. And Elon was in a moment of conviction. And he finally came to the point where he was willing to lay his, his, his farm upon the altar, where he was willing to give it all to God. And just as the devil would have it, his, his daughter came in there and played the part of her mother and convinced her father to keep all of their wealth. He was a weak man. Later, Ellen wrote this, I saw that this brother loved this world more than he ever thought he did and and that it was a snare to him. It deceived him. That's what the world will do to you. As best as I can tell from my study of this story, The next summer, Ellen received another vision concerning Elon. And the Lord revealed to her that he was not doing what God had asked him to do quick enough. Shortly after this, the next thing that Ellen found out about Elon is that he had passed to his grave. It will come as no surprise to you that Elon left his entire estate, which was worth a staggering amount of money, to his selfish, world-loving daughter. Not a penny of the money that he had earned was used to advance the cause of God. His daughter seemed like a curse had followed her. She was unable to manage this vast amount of money. And in a short period of time, she fell into great debt and lost everything. And Ellen penned these words, I saw that Satan's wish had been gained. Brothers and sisters, here is a man who had all the head knowledge, but the devil had a foothold in his heart. He knew enough about the Bible to be able to to come up with this term, investigative judgment. He knew the concepts of the judgment and the sanctuary and the cleansing of it. He understood all of that stuff, but the devil had a foothold in his heart. Maybe you tonight are like Elon. Maybe your uh, idol is not wealth, but it matters little what it is. Because unless we come to the point where we hate sin the same way that Jesus hates it, we are not safe to let loose in the kingdom of heaven. We need to come to the point in our spiritual experience where we are not sorry after we have sinned, but we are sorry before we have sinned so that we do not sin. And that is only possible through the power of Jesus. You cannot do it on your own, so don't even try. Let Jesus do it for you. 
Give your heart in wholehearted surrender to him and say, Lord, please do this work for me. You probably don't have a little carved idol in your house that you bow down to, but maybe there's something in your library that is distracting you from God. Maybe there's something on your phone that is distracting you from God at this very moment as I'm talking to you. Maybe there's something on your computer that is distracting you from God. Maybe there is something in your house that is distracting you from God. Maybe there is something, uh, some type of music that is distracting you from God. Maybe there is something in your wardrobe that is distracting you and other people from God. Maybe there is something, some type of amusement in your life that you enjoy more than you enjoy time together with God and it is distraction to you. Maybe there is a relationship that is distracting you from God. Maybe there is a career choice that is distracting you from God. And if that is the case, as the old song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Turn your eyes to Jesus. God wants to give you the wedding garment. He wants to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ so that when your name comes up in the investigative judgment, you will be permitted to stay at the wedding feast instead of cast out in the outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Is this a reality to you? Today, Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary and he's doing the work of mediation forgiving people of their sins. And tonight I want to ask you, how many of you would like to say, Jesus, I want to be part of getting rid of this sin problem? Amen. Amen. Jesus, I want to get rid of that sin problem in my life. Not looking at other people, but myself. I want to get rid of that sin problem. Now, maybe the Lord tonight, as you have, as you have listened to the message, maybe the Lord has laid upon you a specific sin that you have been struggling with. You know, what is oftentimes referred to as the darling sins, the pet sins in our lives that we make excuses for. That thing that you oftentimes get caught up into that crazy cycle of sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting. And tonight the Lord has laid that specific thing on your heart and said, tonight is the night to give it to me. If that's the case, and you want to say, Lord Jesus, I'm sick of serving sin. I'm sick of serving Satan. And tonight... I want to give this to you because it's not worth holding on to. Tonight, Jesus, I do not want to be known as a sinner, but I want to be known as an overcomer who has, the clothed, has been clothed in the wedding garment of Jesus. If that's your desire, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Don't do it if, just because everybody else is doing it. Lord, I want to give you this sin and I want the wedding garment on.
as I sat in my office preparing this exact sermon, the Lord spoke to me and gave me another appeal that I want to give to you tonight. I have no doubt in my mind that this came from the Lord because this appeal that I'm going to make right now is the appeal that I needed in the four GYCs that I attended. And I'm not pointing my finger at anybody who didn't make that appeal, whatever. But this is what I personally needed as a minister at that time working for the Lord. Maybe there are some of you here tonight who are like Elon, who are involved in ministry. You are involved in some element of the Lord's work, but the devil has a foothold in your life. There is some worldly ensnarement that has, catch, has caught you up and is holding you back from the effective work that God wants you to do. Maybe there's somebody here tonight who serves in some type of church office at home. Maybe you're a youth leader. Maybe you're a Sabbath school teacher. Maybe you are a deacon or a deaconess or maybe you are privileged enough to be one of our elders or, or church treasurer or something like that. You hold some office in the church. Maybe there's somebody here this evening who is involved in the work of soul winning, doing Bible studies, doing evangelism, doing public evangelism, uh, music evangelism, media evangelism. You're involved in the work of the Lord. Maybe there's somebody here tonight who has the privilege to be employed by this great denomination and pull a salary to be able to work for the Lord, but the devil has a foothold in your life. That was me. No shame about it. That was me. That doesn't mean that you haven't done something good for the Lord. Judas performed miracles. You know that, right? God still used him. But listen, brothers and sisters, what profit is there if you gain the entire world, if you win the whole world and you lose your own soul? If I have just described your experience as it was for me, I'm going to ask you to come forward tonight and say, Father, I want that thing out of my life. And I want to have wholehearted, consecrated work to you. Come on forward. Get out of the, let people get out of the way. Come on forward here. You might have to move around to the side to make enough room for everybody. But you are involved in some type of work. This is not a general appeal. But you are involved in some type of work for God. And there is a foothold that the devil has. And you are saying tonight, Lord, I want to give that foothold to you. I don't want the devil to have any more strength in my life. I want to have complete dedication to the work that you've called me to do, to help others to be able to see the beauty of putting on God's wedding garment. Brothers and sisters, this world is not worth being here. Let's get serious. Put on the wedding garment. Let Jesus do that work in your life. Let's finish the work by God's grace through his power and get home to be with our loving Savior. Come on, brothers and sisters. Jesus wants to do that work. He wants to, but he needs you to say, Lord, I'm giving it to you. I'm willing. Please take it and perform the miracle in my life. Praise the Lord. I'm so privileged to be in company 
with a group of young people and even some older people who want to go all the way with Jesus. I count you co-workers, and I'm thankful that we could be together in this great gathering tonight. I want to pray for you this evening, so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we close tonight. Oh, dear Jesus, we are so unworthy. But yet, Lord, you have reached into the gutter and you have pulled us up and you have set our feet on solid ground and you have chosen us to be workers for you. And Father, tonight, some of us are standing. Some of us have come forward. But we are all united in the, in the response that we are tired of living a double standard. We are tired, Lord, of saying one thing but living another way. And tonight, Lord, we don't want the devil to have a foothold in our life any longer. Father, tonight we don't want to have a polygamous relationship with you, but tonight we want to have a monogamous relationship with you, just us and you. We want the devil out of the equation, Father, and we want you to do the work that only you can do of putting the wedding garment on of Christ's spotless character. Dear Jesus, reach down to Houston, Texas, Reach down into the hearts of those here tonight and perform that mighty miracle of transformation. And may we go from this place empowered, emboldened to go out and do a work for God and not be hampered by the devil and his temptations. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this work. We praise your holy name. For we ask it in the almighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, before we let you all go, I want to encourage you to do something. <clears throat> when you are at GYC, there are many appeals that are made. Sometimes you will respond to five or more appeals in your time at GYC. Tonight, I want to ask you humbly, to either here or back at the hotel, take a moment and write down the responses that you have made. Write down the appeals that you have, that you have responded to so that when you get home, you can remind yourself of the decisions that you have made. And you can pray through those decisions and say, Lord Jesus, help me to do what I responded to in Houston, Texas. Would you do that for me? Take a few moments, jot it down. Our memories just fail us sometimes so that you can go back and remind yourself. May the Spirit of God, the sweet Spirit of Jesus, be with you as you worship Him this Sabbath day. Thank you and God bless. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.